Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet. You'll find them online at respectsextet.com. Please visit their website, buy their records, and go to their shows. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. He's at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. This show is on allaboutjazz.com. Thanks to them for carrying it. They've also created a widget that you can put on your site, which will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. If you'd like to use that widget, just go to allaboutjazz.com and type in Jazz Session Widget into the search box, and you'll find the code. It's very easy to install. And if you do that, let me know, because I will mention you in my weekly newsletter. The Jazz Session is member-supported. Thanks to uh, the more than 100 people so far who have become members of the Jazz Session. Very much appreciated. You can join them very easily by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. And right now there's a special membership offer for the next two people who become members at the middle or top levels, either monthly or yearly. So that's either 25 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or $250 a year or $500 a year. The next two people who join at any of those four levels will receive Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set seasons as my little thank you to you. It's a pretty fantastic package and you should definitely want it in your collection. So please do become a member at whatever level you can afford at the jazzsession.com slash join. This is episode number 328, an interview with the bassist Michael Bates. He's just put out a new record inspired by the music of Dmitry Shostakovich. And here's the opening track from that album. My guest is bassist and composer Michael Bates. His new album is called Acrobat, music for and by Dmitry Shostakovich. It's great to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I know very little about Shostakovich as a human being. Uh, I've heard his music, obviously, over the years, but Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about him as a man. And it seems just from the little I've read kind of surrounding your album to get ready to interview you that maybe it's a little difficult to actually know. Something about I, I him. Think that would be true. Yes. Can you yes. can you say something about kind of your perception of him? What it is about him as a person that sure. appeals to you? Um, he's a very fascinating figure. I think he was a child prodigy and and uh, you know grew up under under Stalin in in Russia. I think think the thing about him is you know especially as he as he became I, I it was funny because I was going to uh, I went to uh, a Shostakovich salon uh, that was a talk earlier this week and they were we were talking exactly about this and and one of the questions was you know his earlier music was incredibly bright and uplifting and 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 really beautiful and and in fact kind of whimsical and you know which was not the case for his later works and a lot of what he was known for sure it's certainly not what i associate and with him 
they just you know they 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 talked about him kind of growing up and becoming a, comp- a mature composer under under Stalin and at that time and being deformed and and not able to really do what he wanted to do. So the question at the time was, uh, you know, had he grown up under a different in a different situation in a different country where he could be his own person, his own man, what would his music have sounded like? So. You know, that as kind of like an underpinning, I mean, he was, he was a man that was just full of, full of, uh, of contradictions. He would say one thing to somebody he would say one thing to another. And I think he, he, uh, he did it on purpose to, you know, to kind of just keep things vague and, and people at bay and not be able to, un- to figure them out. Um, I hear he was actually like a really funny guy and a good dude to be around, um, considering the circumstances you know as as he became you know came into fame and prominence i think you know he had to become a lot more guarded he had to be a much more uh cognizant of of the things that he said and the things that he did um and yeah what else it seems like he used his music uh kind of surreptitiously to make statements about at times, for sure. Too, Once right? he knew the 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 kind of eye was on him or the ear was on him, and he was supposed to be writing formalistic Russian music, um, he he did exactly that. And and I mean, and the debate still continues, especially about you know p- big pieces like the Fifth Symphony. But what's interesting, and the stuff that has really influenced me as a composer, uh, are are his chamber works, his you know the string quartets, a lot of his solo piano work, and that was stuff he turned to much later, like you know. Uh, I think he in like in his 30s he turned to writing string quartets, and the thing the reason that he did that is he turned he went to this stuff because it was flying much more under the radar of the government, so people weren't checking it out. And the other thing that was really fascinating about it is that you can invite a string quartet to your home and have concerts for your friends and play all this music that you know potentially could get you, you know. Well, when one of many things, you know, you could, and, and the worst being, you know, taken away from your family and killed. So, you know, and his, and his string quartets were quite subversive on a lot of levels and they were addressing topics and, and subject matter and, and musical matter that were not really condoned by the, by, by Stalin's government at the time. So, um, yeah. So I would, what, that's what's really fascinating about, about that music is that you can, he it flew, flew under the radar. He could have people coming to his house and, and get it performed. And no one really would be the wiser. In this day and age when we have like, you know, Twitter debates about whether jazz is dead, it's incredible to think of actually composing music that could result in you being dead. Yeah. I mean, music that was literally life or death. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, you know, I've, I wrote in the liner notes of the record, I mean, how this man could consistently be so unbelievably creative under such rough and, 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 and difficult circumstances is just profoundly inspiring and, and, and mystifying too. I mean, you know, if I'm not able to pay my rent, I'm not really thinking about paying, you know, writing new music, I would imagine. You know? Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
you talk about uh, what appealed to you musically about Shostakovich's music? Do you remember when that was that you really started to think, oh, this is something I need to dig into? Sure, yeah. Um, for me, I started wanting to look into com- composition in sort of a bigger picture instead of writing just sort of standard uh, AABA uh, jazz tunes or whatever, you know, stuff that I was writing in college. And through, you know, a variety of influences and, and other musicians that I was interested in um, as a fan and then also my contemporaries, we kind of started looking into classical music as ways of expanding and looking at melody and expanding forms and that kind of thing. Um, and Shostakovich just happened to be one of those those people and I bought the the string quartet, the, the famous number eight one played by the Borodines and when I put it on, this first movement with you know, which is the do 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 his you know his his musical initials, I was just blown away. And the thing about him that appeals to me is that he sort of covers all the bases for you know my musical biases. I love music that's highly aggressive, powerful, uh, like dense and strong, but also really lyrical and beautiful. And then and, and he can do that. Uh, the other thing, on a more technical note, from like a college kid's perspective, I could I could hear how he composed. I could hear the blocks. When you hear Bartok or something like that, it's much more sort of like interwoven in a way that it's really hard to figure out what's going on to an untrained ear. You know, in a in a in a broad general sense, when you hear Shostakovich, it's a little more blocky but not in a bad way and you can hear the you can hear the composition you can hear the architecture of the composition much more so and you know from in, in a little more practically you can take stuff from that much easier you know there's like oh i like that section i like that density and then write something in that style um, the thing about him too is that he would write these incredibly exposed melodies for all instruments, say in, a, in the string quartet, and they were just heart-wrenchingly beautiful. But they weren't saccharine. They weren't kind of, um, you know, gooey. They were like just. They had a little. They just been dripping with emotion in a way and they were uh they just identified with all the emotion that he was he was kind of putting forth and it it just became kind of like a bit of an obsession for me where i would i had to have all the string quartets i had to get the piano uh, all the, the the preludes and fugues and then i would you know go through all the symphonies and find these sections you know because the symphonies i'm a little add the symphonies are a little long for me i'm not always there like for the whole time I, I i wish i was but i'm not you know the chamber music is a little shorter and i can i can stay with it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean it just they're they're he just covers a range of emotions that i, I identify with you know i don't have a drop of russian blood in my body but there's something about russian melodies and not just his i mean prokofiev and 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 stravinsky and 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 a whole host of others you know you just have this emotional uh forthcoming that is just you know beautiful and then i mean on top of that uh he has this sort of like sarcastic sly side and you never do really know what he's what he's saying and there's this sort of circusy side and then there's this kind of heavy metal side you know that when you listen to say like the is it the third or the third movement of the of the string quartet the A it's a do 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 dun 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 and you know I was a little heavy metal kid and that that I, that still kind of resonates with me in a way but you know and the other thing too is just you hit this this element of sarcasm and kind of dark but not super dark. Um, the way it's been described to me is laughing through tears. Mm. And I like that a lot.
did his work immediately suggest to you ways that you could uh, kind of take those those musical ideas and put them into your own writing, and particularly in an improvisatory context? Yeah, um, you know, if you, all the way back, like uh, this is my fifth record. Even on the very first trio record, there's a piece called Dimitri on it. And I went to the string quartet number eight and I just kind of like got the score out of the library and went through it and wrote, um, like kind of a Paul motion tune, like a rubato Paul motion tune, uh, based on that, those lines. And, um, yeah, it, it always has. Um, and, 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 you know, frankly, I mean, putting this record out and calling it Music Forum by Dmitry Shostakovich is really something I should have done maybe two albums ago, <laughs> maybe three albums ago, and just come clean. You know, this is sort of, there's an element of that for me, you know. there. Um, this is one where, okay, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. I, I should probably, you know, just be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, the last record had um, has, has stuff that is directly influenced and 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 borrowed from other other elements of his music um there's a piece on the last record called the russian school which is sort of a tribute to all the russian composers that i love and yeah so it was really just a matter of kind of like well okay might as well do it yeah it was interesting to me because i i ran into you uh at a show here in new york and you were telling me about this record and then the record Mm -hmm. eventually came in the mail and the thing about this album when you were telling me about it i was expecting I don't know. I was expecting another one of those like jazz takes on some composer mm-hmm. and, you know, just a whole album of that composer's music done with a jazz group. And this, even though I'd heard your previous music, uh, but this record, it really is a, a Michael Bates record. I mean, it's, it's your compositional vision. And although there are some, I mean, there are some explicit bits of Shostakovich in there, but it is much more informed by that music than it is, you know, directly just yeah, pulled from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's important for 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 me as an artist to do that. Um, it wasn't, you know, it's not like a little way of selling records. It's just it it was just really being honest about what I was trying to do, and um, you know, certainly tribute records or uh, you know records for people or or influenced by people with their name in mind are are nothing new, and. Um, the ones that have, I think, have been the most successful are the ones that are, are like just exactly how you say they're, the, you know, it's in the mix, but it's not, it's the, it's the composers, the, like the person who's putting the records out there, their personality coming through, you know, the ones that, uh, have spoke, spoken to me the most are like Dave Douglas records, you know, like the, the tribute to Wayne Shorter and, um, he did a quartet record, w- which was a tribute to Joni Mitchell and, you know, whew, <laughs> yeah, it's all there, but it's not there, and and that's the thing is like I, you you hear you know in the past people have tried to do certain things with classical records and it's failed pretty miser- miserably over the years, and I think that what's happened now is a lot of musicians have kind of come up and developed uh, language that works, and um, someone was talking to me about this record the other day and and said that the stuff that appealed to me apparently was all the sarcastic stuff and all the circusy stuff. And, and, you know, that's true. But in, at at the same time, it's the stuff that works with a quintet, you know, with a jazz quintet, you can't just take everything and, and, and make it work and, and, and be, and, and make it work and be effective as an improvising vehicle. It has to be, um, it has to be manipulated and has to, you know, for me as a composer and writing for a group like this, you want to have it open-ended enough so people can use it as a launching pad and the music can be different every time. And at the same time, you want to have a certain amount of control as a composer. So your vision kind of comes off. So, yeah, I mean, and I felt it, I felt like it would get pretty boring doing, um, you know, all this contrapuntal stuff all the time because it would become one, one texture. And I think, you know, another big influence was like Ori Kane's Goldberg variations. I mean, and, and his variations are so unbelievable, like the opera one, the hip hop one, you know, and, and it was like that for me is writing music that, you know, using Shostakovich as a vehicle and then taking sort of the idea of what he was about, you know, the subversiveness. And so, okay, what's subversive? 
in my own music and what can I do to this theme that's going to make it totally different but still have a thread and you know that's part of the mystery is like figuring out what in fact is his and what in fact is mine it's so interesting that you mentioned Uri Kane because uh, the whole time that I've been listening to this record his, he keeps flashing through my head uh, in everything from the way the piano is played or the, the roads a lot mm -hmm. of the time is played on it uh, yet yeah, to, to just uh, the way the and the kind of movement of the compositions reminds me a lot of him, not in a derivative way, but I can very much hear yeah. that he's in the background there. Oh, uh, I, you know, um, I love his work. I think he's an amazing piano player and, 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 uh, incredible visionary. And he's exactly that type of musician. You know, he's, I, I'm not actually sure how old he is, but you know, he's a few years older than me. Um, and he has that whole, this, 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 these multiple languages that he's able to kind of put in, all into one like the classical stuff plus you know like there's an element of herbie hancock to in in how he plays and the swinging and then sort of a modern sound and you know i mean he's played in a lot of my favorite bands so that doesn't surprise me and i have all his records <laughs> <laughs> i think i might too actually <laughs> you were going to make a record that was going to explicitly mention Shostakovich did that tailor the compositions in any way or, or cause you to approach writing yeah music? I wrote I wrote that way I wrote with that in mind um, I wrote uh, you know I, I spent a lot of time with his scores I spent a lot of time listening to his music and um, transcribed stuff uh, you know obviously wrote some arrangements and then but at the same time like you know at as we were just saying, like it took you know some conscious left turns to 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 break things up because I'm you know I think from a listener's point of view it's much more interesting to have a, you know different takes different different ways of playing this music you know groove stuff more open ended stuff. So will you talk about the band on this album too? Which is really fantastic. It's a great band. It's um on. In many ways, it's a lot of my musical heroes, um, people that I moved to New York to play with, hopefully one day. Um, I've followed the careers of, of Tom Rainey and, and, and Chris Speed probably since I you know, started listening to more modern jazz. Um, and you know, I bought Tim Burns' Blood Count records and heard Chris. I heard those Jim Black records. And, and he was just, he has a sound that was just perfect for for what I was looking for this there this incredible you know and I'm not sure that he's after it in the same way but there's this element of pathos in his sound that is just incredible uh, he's also a virtuoso clarinet player which is important to me um, in terms of of getting different textures and different sounds out of the out of the band and he's just an incredible reader and 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 visionary you know and, and and when i might say that with all of these uh compositions and these and 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 all our rehearsals and doing the record i very rarely said anything as far as like here's what i'm after i you know and you know which would you know bring me to tom rainey and it's like what am i going to tell tom rainey you know 
he's he's um, just on top of being like just an incredible musician. He's a very very strong personality musically, great guy in person, but he's not someone that you know you really need to give any direction to, and and he's someone that if you just shut your mouth and you know hang on and play with, it's you're gonna hear stuff that you've never heard before probably, and it's gonna be. Maybe not what you were expecting, but it's probably a lot better than what you wanted. Let me ask you about that before we go on to talk about the rest of the band. How do you balance that that idea, which I've, you know, a lot of people say, you know, how am I going to tell X to play his or her instrument better than they would anyway? But I think balanced against that is this idea that, well, I have a vision for this record. I have these compositions, and I have some, at least some kind of picture in my mind of what this project is supposed to be. And in this case, there's at least some explicit reference point that it's anchored to. How do you, how do you balance those two things? I think that's all about that. The, the onus is on the composer. And, and I have over the years developed a way of writing that, that addresses that exact thing. Um, if you listen to a lot of the pieces, you know, the, these charts, when we, with, they start on, you know, on the upper left and they go to the bottom right one time. They're not like a standard uh, AA melody, AABA melody tune where, you know, you play over some, a melody and some chords and then you play it over and over again and, and, and improvise. It, and, then, and then magical moments will come out of that, which is great. But I kind of wanted something to be I, – I wanted this music to, to ex- have that kind of personality. So it's very, very composed. Um, it'll usually start with, you know, like a bunch of really composed stuff and then – morph and kind of like use as a launching pad some material that will send it off into the improvising and then the key thing for me uh as a writer at the time was or when i was writing this was figuring out how to get them to tailor the uh improvising their improvising to fit the next section and so a lot of times I would write dovetails where, you know, backgrounds would start coming in behind the soloist and the soloist would sort of start adjusting. And then they would know that they're coming, you know, you know getting ready for a transition or a, a new, a, some new material and start setting it up in their improvising. And mm. it creates sort of a much more seamless, um, uh, composition that way. So that's sort of, that was been, that's been like my secret kind of weapon as far as a composer and getting my vision across. Um, but you know that can be confining. So I mean, you have to you have to tailor that with with stuff that just lets people go, you know. And um, a lot of this music has uh, it's there are harmonic zones and regions, but a lot of the improvising is pretty open mm. at the same time, you know. And and you know the the it's it's just figuring out ways to do take incredibly simple material and make it sound more, much more than it is and, and, and set people free. You mentioned uh, Chris and Tom. Will you talk yeah. about the rest of the band? So, and then um, Russ Johnson, I think, is one of the true virtuoso jazz trumpet players um, around. He's one of the best. And he's someone that does super hard stuff, makes it look easy, has an incredible sound, has a, has a, a, a huge uh, harmonic and rhythmic language, and and knows a lot of stuff. So again, he's someone that you can just hand music to, and it's just better not to say anything to it, say anything to him, because he's just he's going to get it. I mean, these guys are people that are adding the dynamics and 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 shaping the music from the first get-go i mean i think a lot of it's in their reading ability and you know russ has been in my band for uh probably six or seven years he's one of the first people i I met literally one of the first people i met when i moved to new york i remember running into him at detour uh going to see uh the shul dogs and you know showed up the night i arrived and walked in the door with a friend and he was the first guy you know and we sat down and talked and we've been playing together ever since and um He's a one of my one of my best friends, and also so someone that you just you know when you're hiring people you don't know as well. In the case with Tom and 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 Chris, it's nice to have that that friend uh, in the band where you're like, okay, yeah, he knows how uh, how I think, and he know he knows knows my writing very well. And so if there was anything you know, like sometimes he could just kind of lead a little more. It was good. Um, and then Russ Lossing was the last edition. You know, uh, the last couple of records I've done have always been minus 
uh, chord players. It's been usually two horns, bass, and drums. Um, and I was looking to expand that, looking to figure out ways of, of getting more out of the ensemble uh, in terms of texture. And so I'd experimented with bass clarinet, um, you know, violin, and other thing and other instruments and um for some reason or another it was kind of avoiding piano uh and, and avoiding like a chordal instrument and then i you know it just one night it was like no i should try this and and the first guy that came to mind was russ lossing he's he's one of my two or three favorite piano players period um someone I, who i always try to go see when i when i uh go out to see music and and have been over the years in the entire in the 10 years that i've been living here he's just a um you know just he has has this language and this fluency that very few people do and and uh so i'd seen him play Rhodes. um i'd seen him play acoustic piano so i knew that that was there um but i asked him to just to play piano and then um we we got together, played some music, and and looking at the music, he's like, "Oh man, we, we gotta have roads on this, man. You gotta have roads." <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Well, sure, let's do this." And he's also someone who ha- is a he grew up playing classical music, so he gets it entirely. He has this language. That's why I think his language as an improviser is so deep and profound that he's drawing from all of that. Um, and so I I kind of feel like he really was the uh, the ace in the hole for in the in a real general sense for making this such a a a more expansive sound making the band sound more expansive i sort of knew what i was going to get with chris and and tom and russ in a in the best way possible i knew it was going to be adventurous and 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 uh and and pretty burning i knew um but when russ kind of came into the mix it added a whole other dimension to this music and and one of the one of the happy accidents or one of the the watershed moments was the fact that I was smart in terms of how many gigs this band played and how many rehearsals this band did before we recorded the record and it wasn't that many it was uh, you know I think two or three rehearsals over the course of two or three months and then a gig the night before and Russ showed up at the studio and we had the road set up in the piano and he started pulling all these gadgets out of his bag and plugging them in I didn't even know what they were and we started to record and so like the first track on the record uh dance of death it gets to this you know the trumpet solo and i start hearing this (laughs) the distorted roads coming in and that's the first time that we'd ever heard it just so exciting and so people had got to the point where they knew the music well they and and they understood it the shape was there but it was still fresh so there's a what 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 the energy on that particular record that is that is so deep to me and profound is that everyone's discovering it still but it's totally together Mm. so we're hearing i mean you know there's stuff on there that like was that me was that right who, who made that sound so you know it's cool that's great um you know after all the music is written and you've gotten the band together and you've booked the studio and done the gigs and everything you are also the bass player yeah and in some ways that often strikes me as it's like hard to take off those other hats and just say okay now now my job is to play the bass on yeah. this record and just to be part of the band is that is that even a way you think? And if so, how do you achieve that? 
Um, in the rehearsal process, it's a little harder for me, sure. especially with newer music. And I really make a lot of mistakes because I'm trying to, you know, I'm checking out, you know, how the horns are uh, sound together or like, you know, like the writing. And um, in the studio, it's, it, I, I'm definitely just kind of like going. I'm, I'm just, I just let it go. And, and I'm, I'm just a bass player and I'm, I, I know I have, I have vision, but I mean, the, the reason that you get the musicians you do is because you trust them and you love their vision. If you don't, then maybe you're, you know, well, maybe you're a control freak or you're, you've got the wrong band, you know? Mm. So I just, especially, you know, I, I'm pretty good at that way in the studio. I can just let it go. And, and I just play the bass and I just play the music the best I can. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and you have to, you have to understand that this is improvised music. This is, it's going to go places that you didn't intend it to. And that often is good. Sometimes it's hard and, you know, that's why you do multiple takes and then you just figure it out. Um, and there, there's stuff on, on, on all of my records and, and this one especially that it, you know, it went places that I didn't anticipate. And I, I see that as a real positive. I feel like I've been asking this question a lot recently, but do you ever write things that are hard for you to play? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a lot of people seem to give that answer to Yes, everything I write yeah, is hard for I me mean, to play. <laughs> as, as, as improvisers and, and people who are, you know, working, working on, on being better, we're always doing that. So you're, you know, you write often what you're working on. You know, so if there there's some sort of like rhythmic concept, a great remedy for dealing with the rhythmic concept is to write a you know a piece of music with that in mind. You know, I think um, I'm I have it pretty easy in this band as far as like um, technical stuff because I'm playing mostly foundation. There are no there are, I don't think there's even a bass solo on the record, mm. um, but it's still yeah it's challenging music for sure. Will you talk about uh, other projects, both your own and other things, that people's that you're involved in these days? Sure. Um, I have uh, this Sunday, I'm going to be doing a recording with Michael Blake, Samuel Blazer, Russ Lossing, and Jeff Davis. And that's a new band. Um, Samuel Blazer and I have played together on multiple, uh, in multiple projects. And um, we're really good friends and have always wanted to have a, a band that we co-led. So that's something that hopefully will, uh, you know, surface in the new year and, um, will be a band that will tour quite a bit. Um, I play often in Michael Blake's, uh, band, uh, as a side man, which is great. Um, this summer I was doing a little bit subbing in, uh, JD Allen's band, the saxophone player. And, uh, I, I think he's a, a, an extraordinary composer and a great visionary, and it's great to play trio. Um, let's see. Um, I still have the band Outside Sources with with Russ and Jeff Davis and, and, and Quinson Natchoff, uh, which you know will hopefully just be uh, an ongoing project mm. for for years to come. Um, let's see. And then I actually just went through a big writing. Uh, like a couple of months of, of, of intense writing and wrote uh, a bunch of trio music that I'm still figuring out exactly what the band's going to be. And it's a little, it's quite different for me. It's much more, um, groove based, soulful in a way, um, simpler writing. And, uh, and yeah, so as soon as I can figure out exactly the, the personalities and the character that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking for with that, I'll, I'll try to get that off the ground. And then, um, a couple of months ago, I did a gig with uh, with Marty Ehrlich and and uh, Michael Serene with Russ Johnson and Russ Lossing, and there'll be a version of that band for sure because it's just much more uh, playful. I have an idea for the next album to be a bunch of circus or si circus, not circus music, but circus sideshow music, like freak show music. Oh wow, cool! So that's that's uh, another project in the mix. That's great.
you uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, previously you had written without a chordal instrument. Can you talk about the reasoning behind it? Um, I was pretty fascinated by the idea of counterpoint and this idea that um, if you have three voices, uh, not including the drums, so you have the bass sort of as an underpinning and two instruments, you can outline and 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 uh, and lay down like harmonic structures and uh, at the same time if there's someone soloing that takes away one of the three and it becomes a little more harmonically uh, less uh, formal or less uh, I'm trying to avoid saying like you know it becomes more open because that's a real sort of standard thing but maybe that's true so um, I was just experimenting with that idea of of writing very tonal and 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 very uh, uh, constructed music without having to use a chord, you know? And the thing was for me for a long time, it just sounded every time I, I used piano in my group, it sounded really smooth and I didn't want smooth. So it was, it was more about that. Um, and then, you know, and Russ Lossing blew that, that concept out of the water for me, but yeah. So, but as a composer writing without chords, it's just putting again more onus on me for making that stuff speak from a writer, a compositional point of view. And so, when you knew uh, this time that there was going to be a chordal instrument, were you using those same techniques, or did you have to adjust the kind of the amount of counterpoint and things like Russ that? Russ came late into the mix, okay. so a lot of the music was written um, without a harmonic instrument in in mind. Okay. And I had to do go back and 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 do some some uh, you know finagling to to make it work. But an interesting story, you know, he, he, <laughs> he leading up to the to the recording and and at, at the rehearsals and the gig, well, the rehearsals especially, you know, he would ask a lot of questions and say, "Do you want me to a or do you want me to do this or what are you looking for here?" And I wouldn't answer him. You know, I, I mean, I would just say, whatever, you got it, you got it, you know, because he's someone who, you know, I don't want to get in his own, in his way. And so I, I have a term that I often use with, with, for people in that situation. It's like, no, you're the free agent. You got it. You know, you're, you're just, you're, you're the whatever you find, you figure it out. So he was kind of set free. And I think that really helped, you know. It's so interesting. I mean, I know we, we just addressed this a minute ago, but at that, that seems like a remarkable amount of, I'm not sure if the word is selflessness or maybe it's courage, but the idea that, you know, you spend all this time writing the music and you're in the studio for a very short amount of time mm-hmm. and there's only a few rehearsals and yet you're willing to give something as large as the piano parts, I mean, which could totally overwhelm a band mm-hmm. if not handled skillfully. Yeah. You're willing to just say, okay, you're, <laughs> you're free to do, do as you wish. Yes, I would agree with you. <laughs> I don't know about the selfless part, but. You know, I mean, you have to, again, look at who you're dealing with. You know, there are people that, without that kind of direction, wouldn't do so well. You know, that are really just wanting to, you know, want that to have a role and play that way. And that's great. But, you know, Russ is just not one of those people. It's just better if it's not, you know. Mm. Because, I mean, there have been so many, you know, as a music fan, you... You know, you buy records and, and you're like, wow, so-and-so's on this record. I got to have it. And then you're kind of bummed because their personality isn't, you know, coming out sometimes. And it's not their fault. It's that they're playing the gig. They're, they were given a specific role or whatever. And the music is written in such a way that they can't kind of go out and do their thing. You know, I mean, someone like Ben Maunder, you know, you hear him on countless records. And on his own is just or like live and you know you're just like wow i mean yeah the best <laughs> he's, he's incredible um there have been times where you know you hear him and he's just playing the gig like he's not and it's not that not his spirit is you know it's just like the mu- the music is such that you know he's just playing parts and and you don't get that character and, and it's all about character for me mm. as a as a as a band leader and as a music fan you know right yeah i agree it, uh, just a minute ago, you were talking about the trio music that you've recently written, mm-hmm. and 
uh, that you hadn't yet figured out who was going to play it, which uh, I think, and I'm totally going anecdotally here, but if I think about you know the interviews that I've done on this show, it seems like much of the time people are writing for specific personalities they know are going to play mm-hmm. the music. Uh, so it sounds like now you have the kind of the opposite task, which is, okay, this music is here, and now I have to kind of go out into the world and figure out yeah. who can actualize this yeah. this vision. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that, about the it, writing of that It's one music? of the first times. It's funny you that you that you picked up on that. Um, for a long time, I've written with specific types of, of musicians in mind. Um, and and you've also had a working band. Yeah, and had time. a working yeah. band, too. And... Um, and also the compositions are often kind of long. People about, you know, make jokes about, you know, I get up to like section J, section I. I mean, which is how I just kind of label stuff. It might be A, A double prime, but it's right. easier to just call it, you know, L. But, um, uh, so this, when I sat down with this music, it, the, there was a, a bit of a mandate and it was going to be blues based in a way, in, in very well disguised. And it was going to fit on one maximum two pages and two pages only because I was writing in double in like grand staff with like mm. a baseline and a, a treble clef, but it was supposed to just fit on one page basically. Um, and I wanted it to be played by any, be able to play, uh, be able to be performed and, uh, and played by any type of instruments. And I never have done that before. It's always been like, I'm writing for clarinet. I'm writing for, you know, like a saxophone, or whatever, you know, like this is more like it could be piano trio music. It could be guitar trio music. It could be saxophone trio music. Um, I think it's going to be saxophone trio music. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it, there, there are elements that are a little more kind of, you know, you've heard this before, but I hopefully in a, in a different context, in, in a new context. I don't know. It's tough. What caused you to impose those restrictions on yourself? Actually, just it was more about just kind of being a, new, a bass player in New York and playing a lot of sessions mm. and bringing music that <laughs> was you know didn't always work, like you know bring my Shostakovich book or the quintet book or whatever, and going to a session and it not being that fun to play because one it's hard to read, two uh, you need a, a certain amount of musicians to to make the music kind of come through, uh, and it just. You know, and, and, and I want to, I play with a variety of people on a day to day or week to week basis in the city, just, you know, getting out there and playing sessions. And I wanted stuff that could just be played by anybody. So that yeah. was, that was, the, that was the, I was like, man, I just want to write a bunch of music that's good for sessions. Did you find, uh, once you had imposed those restrictions that it opened up new possibilities yeah, for you as a writer? Totally. I mean, I'm, it's, it's stuff that, um, I, I surprised a lot of my, uh, I surprised myself in, in the choices that I made and in, in good ways. Um, it's just, a, there's just, it's a little more, it's not as like smart guy stuff. It's, it's just more like groovy, soulful kind of. And, and I, I mean, I like to think I have elements of that yeah. in my day to day, but you know, it's new for sure. Did you find that you were drawing more on your pre jazz? Nope. Life in that No, actually, no? I would say more thinking like in a real jazz okay. sort of, like actually more drawing from jazz. Okay. If that's, if that makes any sense. So, you know, I mean, this is, this, this is just, the, the, the story is actually, um, about 10 years ago, no longer, uh, about 12 years ago, I went to Banff. Um, the, there's a jazz workshop in, in Canada that is, at the time was run, uh, by Kenny Werner. And, you know, about 70 musicians from all over the world come and, and you, you, you play and you, you write and you, you know, put together bands. And, and these are relationships that usually last, you know, I still, all of, most of my best friends are somehow connected to that, um, that workshop. And, um, Dave Douglas came for a week and I was, uh, quite a big fan at the time. And he started a compositional workshop and, you know, about 30 of us. 30 of us got involved and on his first day walking around, he's like, you know, it sounds, everyone sounds great. I'm just hearing a a lot of people playing, you know, tunes, standards, which is, is cool. But there's, you know, there's this idea of writing our own music and maybe we can look into that. And in, in his masterclass, he gave three assignments. He said, you know, you can write, you know, write uh, some short pieces all on one page 
One is a serial composition, 12-tone kind of thing. One is a graphic score. And so that's like, you know, symbols that represent musical elements or ideas in whatever way, open-ended. And then the third one was um, a unique take on a blues. And I dismissed that one instantly. It's like, oh, one, you know, I, at the time I was like, that's not cool enough. I'm going to write serial music. I'm going to write a graphic score. So that's kind of what I did. You know, the truth is, is I don't think I, I think I was afraid of the blues in, in you writing a different take on the blues. I didn't think I had that kind of language. I was, it was a deficiency in my own playing and in my own knowledge. I didn't, you know, and, and I mean, I was sort of like really in, at that time, quite left, really into playing open and free music and, 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 and checking that out into Mark Elias and into, into angular stuff. And it kind of has over the years bothered me that I never did it. And it just not in a day to day thing, but it just was there. And, um, so a couple of months ago I sat down and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a blues. And I hadn't ever sat down and written a blues. And so I wrote something that doesn't really much resemble a blues anymore, but certainly draws from that, that language. And it was very, like, it was very satisfying. And so another thing that I did at the time was once I finished that composition, while sitting at the piano still, I sat down and started writing, or I stayed sitting and I started writing another one right there. It's like, I want to see if I can do this again. And the next thing that came out was a boogaloo. <laughs> and <laughs> for, for friends of mine that know me that, you know, that, that would seem strange. Um, and, and there's another story attached to that. And that was, I had, when I'd first moved to the city, I went to see Michael Blake play at Tonic. Uh, actually, I didn't go see Michael Blake play. I went to Tonic to see Angie Sanchez play with John A. Barron, Tom Rainey, and uh, and some other people. I think it was um, uh, Herb Robertson, and, and I loved it. And then Michael Blake's band came on, and I was mad at them because they started with the Boogaloo. And I was like, this man, what? Come on. And about two years later, I met Michael at a session or on a gig and we started playing together and we played a lot of his music and I was fortunate enough to go on, uh, on a, and play, uh, uh, in Europe with him, uh, as his bass player. And we played a boogaloo and we played, um, a Johnny Cash tune, ring of fire. And we played a bunch of his originals, all pretty groovy. And I have to say, without question, that was one of the most transforming experiences of my life, watching him connect with an audience and watching how he was so creative with his music every night. And it completely transformed me, you know, in a way like, you know, I, I came home and I just had a new take on what it was to be a composer. Um, and I wrote a lot of music, actually a lot of the music that's on Clockwise right after that tour. And you can start sort of see the thread starting to come through. There's a little more groove-based stuff. There's a little more sort of like just music, you know, satisfying. Like as a listener, as a fan, like you listen to this and it's like, wow, that, that makes me feel good. I like to listen to this. And um, I always kind of laugh at that. And I've told them that story. And, and I've told him how much that, that affected me. And so I'm writing this bass line and I'm writing, I'm, you know, at the piano writing and, and I'm like, you know, I'm really hearing Boogaloo here. <laughs> really hearing Boogaloo. So I, you know, you just, you have to kind of follow your ear, uh, I think to be honest. And, you know, the rationale at the time was, well, I can write it. I don't have to play it. So, and then I wrote it and I love it. You know, it's a five-bar phrase. It's still all the sort of weirdness, but it—it's you know, it's a groove-based tune, and you have. To, I just, I really believe in that. Following your ear, kind of a long-winded story. Sorry, but maybe of some interest.
talk about the artwork on the new album? I would I would be honored. Um, the artwork on the album is done by a fantastic artist named Steve Byram. Um, and he is uh, he's probably most well-known in the jazz community as the guy who did all the screw gun stuff for Tim Byrne. Um, and, uh, you know, when I started getting into this music, like Tim Tim's screw gun uh, label, you know, it was just had this 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 persona, this aura around it, and that was just like, wow, man, the full package, this weird music, these amazing art that I've never seen anything like, you know, that brown, those brown covers with the scribbling all over it, and and it was just, it, it sort of, you know, it was just like, wow. So once I had done this record and kind of realized, at least for me, that this was going to be. Um, this was probably the best thing that I had done, and it was with certain types of musicians that I was really um, proud to be a part of uh, a group like that. I started, you know, thinking about the artwork, and and he was the first guy that came to mind as far as someone that has that kind of, you know, there's an element to Shostakovich, to Steve Byram, in a way, you know, it's like he, it, it's this kind of edgy, but kind of whimsical, kind of beautiful, highly skilled, but very rough. Uh, element to his artwork so I, I got in touch with him and he was you know he wanted to hear the record and, and you know knew the guys on the uh, on the recording and you know got back to me right away and said I love it it's different from what I'd normally do great and we sat down uh, and had a and had a talk for a couple of hours about all sorts of stuff you know but certainly um, this element uh, of Shostakovich as what is called the Eurydice and that is sort of um it's a person who knows everything but claims to know nothing maybe doesn't know everything maybe does and and just kind of talks about uh can get away with a lot by not really ever saying the truth but maybe saying the truth and and when i brought this up and this is like a this is like a, a russian a russian uh concept and he's like oh it's the court jester it's 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 you know it's like uh, commedia della art and and he and he started bringing up all these people or all this the, the, these elements of that in other cultures, so he went home and kind of ran with that and came up with this artwork that you see on the cover and it's you know like this guy juggling a bunch of heads in a way <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and ran with that and. And it's very Byron, but it's also kind of very not. There's like much more of a uh, of like a, a clear image of, of of something, whereas a lot of stuff, the, often what he does is much more abstract. Um, and the cool part for me is again, I just said, "Here's the music. You got it." You know, I think I said my last cover was pretty, you know, dark in color, like it was a black cover, uh, maybe something brighter. And and then he sent me this image, and I was like. Yeah, great. And uh, and every single time after I'd said, yeah, that's it, we got it, it kept coming back different, different, changing. He's like, oh, I was listening to the record, I got this now. And boom, another another thing. And I kind of just let him go. And, and I feel like he thinks about about it in the same way that it's, it's really a collaboration with the artist and him. And so the artwork um, was just, it's, you know, it's beautiful. And it was nice that... Um, the owner of Sunnyside Records, Francois Sacolin, when when he saw it, he was like, "This is a masterpiece," and I really think it kind of is. And then the best part after that was once the cover was done, I had asked Steve for a poster uh, design. I said, "You know, maybe just minus the text, so we can you know write some stuff on it." And he sent me poster after poster after poster, <laughs> everyone different. I was like, "Man, you know, like you could stop." <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like it's just coming out i had i had a minute <laughs> you know i just saw that and 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 so uh he's just he's an artist in the in the in the truest sense of the word too you know it's really really unbelievable um not to mention that he also did uh, he was an art director for columbia records uh a while ago and did slayer's rain and blood and uh, beastie boys license to ill so wow you know there's some that's there's all right some, some cool parts of the elements <laughs> of that too so Byron. My guest is Michael Bates, and the new album is called Acrobat Music for and by Dmitry Shostakovich. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
That's music from bassist Michael Bates and his new album on Sunnyside called Acrobat. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thank you so much for listening. Please do become a member if you like what you hear at thejazzsession.com slash join. You can also at thejazzsession.com sign up for the mailing list and you'll get an email each Monday telling you who's on the show that coming week and usually the week following if I know that far in advance. Meanwhile, get out there if you would and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye.